Take your Bibles, turn. We're in our uh, walk through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we are in uh, chapter 6 now. We're actually moving along. And we're going to start with verse 1. It says, Then he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. So let's just do a little back up uh, from last week. So we've kind of come around full circle now to Jesus and his ministry and what he's been doing uh, since he had left. Jesus had demonstrated, remember we talked about his supremacy over the creation, over the elements when he uh, stilled the storm and the wind and the waves uh, out in the boat. And then we talked about uh, he demonstrated his supremacy over the demonic realm uh, with the demoniac and the freeing of him and turning that man, this absolutely possessed person that people couldn't even chain anymore into the first missionary that we find in the in the New Testament. And then last week, Shannon did a great job of walking through Jesus' supremacy over death and disease and sickness, uh, both with uh, Jairus' daughter and then also with the woman who was hemorrhaging. So uh, these were set in place by Mark strategically to demonstrate those things. And Jesus now comes back and he returns to his hometown, Nazareth, hoping for a warm welcome and some much-needed rest. You can imagine how taxing that would be if you had to do that stuff, right? And so he's pretty tired. And it says this in verse 2, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands. Jesus was a mystery to them, but not really in the way we think. Uh, they had no problem with who he was. They, they had grown up with him. They knew him. He had grown up among them. And so he, he was known. The mystery was, how in the world was he pulling these things off? Right? This podunk kid from this podunk town. Okay, now, wait a minute. Where's this all coming from? They had heard the stories the Nazareth Daily Gazette, i.e. the rumor mill, was in full swing, right? The grapevine is way faster than anything, and so word had gotten out. Um, they had probably even seen some of the stuff, some of the miracles happen that he had accomplished. The other towns that we're talking about were not far away. They, they weren't uh, large distances, and so uh, due to uh, business and family connects like that, they probably were aware of it. And in this, you, you kind of pick up a subtle note of resentment towards Jesus. You get this sense of, you know, who made this guy Mr. Daddy Big Britches? Right? Keep your place, son. Kind of, if you grew up in that kind of town, you'd understand that. And uh, don't come waltzing in here as some big shot rabbi. I mean, come on, dude. We know who you are. You grew up here. Uh, others may be fooled, but, but we aren't. You're nothing more than a carpenter, so don't try to be pretend to be more than that how, how do we know they kind of had this attitude look at the following verse in verse three it says they were saying to themselves is this not the carpenter the son of mary the brother of james joseph judas and simon and are not his sisters here with us and they took offense at him jesus apprenticed under his father joseph and then it appears that when his, we don't know the story about Joseph at all. Uh, there's no background or history to it that tells us, but the best we can discern is that Joseph passed. And in the passing, then Jesus p- 
picked up the carpentry skills until he started uh, his ministry at the call of 30. So he, like his father, was known as a carpenter. Notice they don't say, hey, is this not the carpenter's son? They say, is this not the carpenter? So Jesus was known as the carpenter in the village of Nazareth. It also needs to be pointed out that these are some of the more controversial uh, verses in all of the Bible. Uh, It has to do with the nature of Mary, his mother, and it occurs on two levels. The first level is where they say, is this not Mary's son? Right Now that's unusual because they're not saying it from the father's side. They're not saying, is this not Joseph's son? Which is how you would do it, right? Normally from the masculine side in that culture, it came down from the father's side. They're saying, is this not Mary's son? The Expositor's Bible Commentary points out that it's highly abnormal for Jesus to be addressed this way, even if his father had passed away, right? So uh, this, in a sense, then, is a derogatory statement, and it parallels John 8:41, where Jesus and the Jews were having an uh, altercation, a pretty heated one, as a matter of fact, and they addressed Jesus with the counter-reply, uh, we were not born of sexual immorality. In, in that passage in John 8, they're actually calling Jesus a bastard child. Right? And so the accusations were pretty intense. Don't you tell us how to look at God. We know your background. We know your mom. We know the story. Right? And the story is your mom was loose. She got pregnant before marriage. And you're an illegitimate child. So who are you to tell us? Right? And they, they weren't they didn't mind pulling that punch. So suspicions of Mary's past and Jesus' birth uh, hang tough in a small town. Memories are long in a small town. A second is a much longer discussion of what's known as the perpetual virginity of Mary, which is a very strongly held doctrine in the Catholic Church. Right? Uh, the doctrine states that Mary never had sex with Joseph and remained a virgin all through her life until the Immaculate Reception where she was translated into heaven. And this passage names the children, now adults. So the Catholic take is that these must be cousins or stepchildren that Joseph had by another marriage. That's how you work that in. The Protestant take is that Mary remained a virgin until Jesus was born. And then Joseph and Mary had other children after that. And they named the names. Uh, James, one of them, would become the leader of the then newly emerging and fledgling church uh, in Jerusalem. And he becomes the author of the book in the Bible known as the book of James that we just studied last year. And so uh, it's aptly named James. Real creative. Uh, He also became one of the early martyrs uh, in the church. So all that aside, the conclusion of the matter is this. It says that they took offense at him. In other words, they were provoked. The Greek word is a fun one. It's skandalonizome, which is a long word, but it basically where we get our word scandal from, right? So you'd recognize that in the root word there. They were, in essence, scandalized by Jesus. He disrupted the routine. Uh, They were kind of in sync with Nathaniel. Remember Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? (laughs) Their answer was probably no, right? And, and so they were baffled by, by how or what means is he doing or saying the things that he does. We don't know. 
But the bottom line, we're not buying it. Whatever it is, uh, who's he trying to kid? Okay, so they were, it says they were offended. They were scandalized by Jesus. They didn't know what to do with him because he had jumped out of the box. Right? You ever jump out of a box of somebody's uh, opinion of you or somebody's take on you and you do something different and they're like, you can't do that. Stop it. Right? Why not? Because you don't do that. Well, why not? Because you don't. Right? And that's kind of what the pickle Jesus found himself in. And then Jesus says these very famous words. He says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And then it says this, And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And it says he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Jesus here is, is kind of paraphrasing an old maxim. Uh, familiarity breeds contempt, right? The problem wasn't that they didn't know Jesus. The problem was they knew him too well. And so they were like, we know you. Who Stop trying to be this somebody else who you think you are. We're not buying it. They knew him as Jesus the carpenter, and they didn't want to let him out of that box, right? You ever uh, grow up? away from home and come back to home and they still think you're the person that you were back, right, kind of thing. And so they knew Jesus as the carpenter. For him to insinuate that he was anything else than what he was met with real resistance. Especially the idea that he was now a great rabbi who needed to be followed because he hadn't even gone to synagogue, you know, school and seminary and all that stuff. And uh, where was he pulling this off from? Uh, who in the world does he think he is anyways? And here's the really important observation. Sometimes if you want to do something for God and take a face step, uh, you've got to do it. And those closest to you might offer the most resistance. Right? You've probably encountered that at different times where the people, no, don't be doing that, right? Another observation is this. He could do no mighty work there. He he couldn't do the stuff he normally did because their attitude, it seems to speak here, straightjacketed him. Their unbelief and resisted limited Jesus' ability to do anything. The commentary, the Expositor's Bible comment points out that this is one of the few places in the Bible that mentions something Jesus couldn't do. Now think about that, right? We, don't, we think about all things Jesus could do. Uh, it points out this is one of the places where it mentions one of the things that Jesus couldn't do. In other words, the state of the heart of the people has some connection with what Jesus is or isn't able to do among a group of people. Now, is God limited? No. Is God stopped by any group of people? No. If God wants to do it, can he do it? Yes, right? But when you're talking about people who are supposed to be cooperating with them, the mindset and the heart set within that group of people really opens or closes God's ability to operate within a group of people. And you can see this in this story, and it's, it's really uh, worth noting. And I just want to say, I think there's a key takeaway here for us, is that, you know, we need to continue to have an open heart. We need to continue 
to, to listen to the Lord. We need to continue to operate by faith. And to the level we do as a group of people really says what Jesus can or can't do among us as a group of people. Hebrews 11 says this and parallels this. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, number one, believe there actually is a God, and number two, that he rewards those who seek him. And I think that's a really important word right now in our culture because a lot of people are flagging. A lot of people are quitting. A lot of people are going... Uh, on two levels. One, God didn't come through for me the way I wanted him to come through, so I'm, I'm out. And the other, the culture's getting really scary. I don't understand this anymore. It looks like God's lost. I don't think this battle's going to go well. I'm going to get out before we get clobbered. Right? You've got those two camps, those two schools in our culture right now. And it's just really easy to ditch in our culture. Um, matter of fact, it used to be if you ditched, you were called out for it. Uh, now you're rewarded for it in our culture. And you see this on job levels. You see this on any number of things where uh, you're given permission to ditch. And nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere in the Bible, are we given permission to ditch. So that, that's important. Nazareth did not please God. So let's get that part straight. God's not happy with their attitude. He's not pleased. As a matter of fact, he didn't stay there. He went to another town. He went to the other villages, it says. And note that he was right there. He was in their midst. He was with them. You know, we say, oh, I would follow God much closer if he was here, if I could see him, right? If he was, mm, maybe not. They didn't, right? He was right there. You know, there's an old saying, whether you think you can or think you can't, you're right. You know that? You've heard that before. Um, That can be reapplied to Jesus this way. Whether you think he can or thinks he can't, you think he can't, you're right. A lot of what God can do is limited by what our belief system is that he can do. And a lot of times God wants to challenge that because he's not going to stay in our box any more than he stayed in their box. Does that make sense? So we shouldn't be surprised when God works in amazing ways. There's a connection between his ability and our faith that either does or doesn't set things into motion. And so I just want to encourage us to continue to lean into your faith and continue to believe that God can. Here's the reason why. Remember when Jesus would go and heal people? Often when he was healing somebody, what did he ask them? Do you believe I can do this? Remember places where he said, right? Do you believe I can do this? And depending on their response, they would get a healing according to what they believed in Jesus. And we just went through this Hebrews 11 where it says, without faith it's impossible to believe God. And one of the questions is, what's one of Jesus' main concerns? Right? When, when he, we always think of it from our side, looking up, wondering when he'll come back. But when he comes back, what, what is one of his concerns when he actually returns? And one of his great concerns is, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? 
Will he find anybody who believes in him? Will he find anybody that's hanging in there? Will he find anybody that's steadfast, persevering, enduring, and hanging with him? And you can tell that it's a concern of his. Those aren't words attributed to Jesus. Those are Jesus' words. When I come back, am I going to find faith on the earth? And I think if you look at our world right now, you know, a lot of people are ditching it. Old school, fuddy-duddy, ridiculous. Why do people even do that anymore? We're so past Jesus, right? And Jesus is going, is anybody going to be hanging in there? And we need to just keep operating and believing faith. We need to continue to grow in our faith. We have not arrived. You haven't arrived. I haven't arrived. We've got to hang in there. Uh, We want to be a church, a group of believers, followers of Jesus, that make Jesus marvel. You know, we can do that. We can make him go, that's incredible, right? Not at our unbelief, right? He marveled at their unbelief in Nazareth. He was like, this is unreal. It would stun him. But we want, want him to marvel like the centurion. Remember when he ran into the centurion? And he said, I have a servant who's dying. Can come and heal him? And he says, I'll come right in. He says, no, I don't. I'm not even worthy for you to come under my roof. But if you just say the word, my servant will be healed. And what did Jesus say? Never have I seen such great faith in all of Israel. So the truth is, it is crashing and burning all around us. But the other truth is, it is a great time for great faith. It is a great time to lean in towards God. And so you can kind of picture, uh, you know, a person leaning in versus a person leaning away versus a person stuck. Not sure which way to lean, right? Going, am I leaning in? Am I leaning away? Am I stuck? These two don't please God. This one does. So let's be a group of people that let let's be a group of people that leans in, and let's not be like Nazareth, right? Where he showed up and goes, "Well, what are you doing here? <laughs> not good." All right. Then it goes on. Then he puts something in motion that the world has never gotten over and still hasn't. It says he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. A lot of people wonder, those are kind of weird instructions, right? Well, for one, we don't wear tunics anymore, right? We do wear sandals. Um, but, you know, some of this stuff is kind of important to that moment in history. But this is a really significant moment in history. Jesus commissions the twelve and sends them out in pairs. And Jesus has spent a lot of time with them. He spent a lot of time teaching them, a lot of time discipling them. And now comes do time, go time. There is a place to be. And then there's a place to do. Right? There's a time to learn and then there's a time to go. And Jesus now says it's go time. They've watched. Now they get to participate. They're kind of launched, so to speak, right? Out you go. And um, specifically, they were given by Jesus authority over unclean spirits. It mentions that uh, very uh, importantly. And the instructions, no food, no bag, no money, no tunic. Uh, Really, if you think about this, it's pure genius on Jesus' part. If they had all the stuff, They could have chickened out and stayed in the country. 
right? If they had money, if they had their bags, if they had uh, their the extra tunic, that would keep them warm at night. They really didn't have to go into the villages. You know, I, I imagine from, if you start over here where Jesus said, all right, you are now commissioned, go, right? And they go, gotcha. And they got about this far and went, uh-huh, <laughs> what did he tell us to do again? You ever done that, right? You get about halfway there and go, what, did I really hear from God on that? Was he sure that's what he asked me to do? Uh, I, I think that's what I heard, but, you know, how do I know for sure? And I think, you know, they could have been in the same place. Um, and this ensured that they went to the villages of Israel. Jesus took away stuff to make sure they had to go all the way because otherwise they didn't have anything. The only thing they were actually allowed to take with them was a staff, right? So think of it as kind of trip insurance on Jesus's part that they carried out the mission, Right? They were allowed to take a staff. You say, why a staff? Well, a staff was very handy uh, to ward off dogs, snakes, and wild animals. And maybe some crazy people to boot. Right? We, we don't live that way. So, But central to the call was the need to absolutely trust God for their provision. You know, sometimes we can get away from that, especially in America. I provide. I make the salary. I, it's my house, my car, my... N- no, no. Let's remember he provides. He provided you with your career. He provided you with the opportunities. As a matter of fact, if you just stop this morning and look back, isn't hindsight amazing? Just 2020, right? And if you look back, you can so in the present, when you try to see God's footprints, it's kind of or fingerprints, it's kind of clear as mud half the time. I don't know if for you it is for me, right? Kind of, wow, where's this going? But if I look back, I can clearly see God's fingerprints all over the thing, right? I see where he walked. I see the door he opened. I go, oh my goodness, that's crazy. That's incredible. And um, we need to continue to absolutely trust God for the not just the stuff we have, but for the role he has for us. What has Jesus called you to do? What has he asked from you? Who has he asked you to minister to? What has he asked you by faith? We don't all have the same slots. We all have the same call to obey him, but we're, we're dispersed out in different assignments. What's your slot? What's your assignment? And are you doing it? In this particular case, what was their slot? They were sent out by twos to go to the different villages that Jesus hadn't gone to yet. They had to trust God for provision, which actually included where they were going to stay. Right? Then he said to him this, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they moved about from village to village, trusting, hoping that someone would show them hospitality. I don't know if you remember the Jesus movement. Anybody old enough to remember the Jesus movement? Some of you are looking down, don't I? Yes, you do. Okay? But there were actually groups that went out in the Jesus movement like this. They just started walking and walked to the first town, said, we're here to witness for Jesus, and would you take us in for the weekend? And uh, it was a kind of a surprising, crazy era where a lot of this stuff went on. A lot of people thought it was nuts, and a lot of great stuff happened at the same time. So it said they moved from village to village, trusting that someone would show them hospitality. And uh, 
Expositor's Bible commentary mentions the fact that the instructions give the whole passage a sense of urgency. They weren't just to take their time and lollygag from village to village. They were to move from village to village in a, with uh, a sense of purpose. When we were in Austria with Gordy Beck uh, two years ago, Gordy and Tabitha, and we were down in Salzburg, and their, their traffic lights and signals are like when they go, and they would change, and, and Gordy would say to us, okay, let's walk with purpose, right? Like get across the street, because otherwise we're going to get mowed over. And so Pam and I always say, okay, we're walking with purpose now, <laughs> right? That carries this sense to it. And if the village didn't receive them, they were to shake the dust of their sandals off as a sign against them. In essence, God's blessing has been removed from you. What was that designed to do? That was designed as a signal to that village they should repent. Right? That was, that was wait a minute, we blew it here. That's not a, any time in Israel's history they would shake a sandal off. That was a sign of the blessing had been removed. And so that's why that was that. Then it says, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed oil with many who were sick and they healed them. And most of the time when this passage is preached, it it focused on the fact that uh, demons were cast out and that many people were healed. And how come that doesn't happen today? And you go into all these things back and forth. I want to focus on a different part of the passage. What was the message? They went to the villages and said what? You're, you should repent. We don't hear that message much anymore. Uh, the message in our country today is do whatever you want, whenever you want, no matter what you want. Just, you don't need to change a thing. Be who you are. Be all that you can be. Be whatever you want to be. Just, right? Just go for it. The message of, no, you can't. Stop. Quit doing that. You need to turn. We need to turn. Uh, is a message that's kind of, kind of lost. I'm going to ask the guys if you would uh, disperse communion right now and uh, get us set up for communion. Note the message here. The message is that they should repent. And then that message was followed by signs that backed up and validated their authenticity because the village could have very rightly said, who are you? Right? Two guys walk into town. Hey, we're followers of Jesus. Who are you and who's Jesus? Right? And so they validated that with the signs. If you go back to Mark, notice the consistency here. Let's go back to Mark chapter 1. Right? It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And what does it say they're supposed to do? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There is this aspect to getting right with God. You have to change something in your heart. If you remember back before you knew the Lord, there was that battle, there was that wall, there was that distance, there was that gap, whatever you want to call it. And to get right with Jesus, you had to admit you were wrong. You had to admit that you had sinned. And you had to come to Jesus on his terms. So we find that Jesus proclaims that and then we come back 
And this is the same message they carried out that people should repent. So Jesus is now signaling a couple key things. The movement is moving past him. It's no longer isolated to him, and it's just him walking about. Now it's being dispersed by six different teams. From the opposition side, this was seen as really dangerous and a radical development to the leaders in Israel because now it's going to be much harder to contain the collateral damage. They were kind of coming from the angle, hey, it shouldn't be that much to shut Jesus down. And to take out one guy won't be that hard. Now suddenly they have 12 guys, six teams, right? And it's no longer localized. So it's become a much bigger problem. But have you stopped and thought about the fact that we, this morning, sitting here, you, yes, you, are in that line of history. We're in this line of a group being sent out. We are also the called and the saved and the sent. Uh, just a reminder, we're in our, our 20th year anniversary, right? And, and we're going to have uh, the 20th reunion at Church in the Park uh, this summer, which should just be a great celebration together. But we were what? A sent group. We were sent from North Shore to become Northview in Mill Creek, and we were sent on mission. So that didn't stop just because we're 20 years old now. We don't have to do that anymore. That was done once. They took a step of faith. We don't have to do that anymore. No, we're in that line. We are of the sin. And notice the context that the gospel is couched in. Okay? People are to repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, this change of mind, I need to quit looking at it from my through my lens, I need to start looking at it through Jesus' lens. The gospel is that Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, came and died in our place for our sins and then rose again to eternal life and whoever should believe in him will live and not perish. That's the gospel, that God has done something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. And he's given us a vehicle, so to speak, for that to happen, the vehicle is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That if I put my faith in him, then I will be saved and I will have eternal life. Not, uh, and this gets confusing because uh, notice eternal life is not based on whether you're a good person or not. Okay, A lot of us in here are good people. right? A lot of people in our country are good people. That's not the qualification for being able to go to heaven. It's not based on your heritage, okay? Whatever nationality or uh, I come from a great long line of pastors or I come from, no, God doesn't have grandchildren. Um, I was trying to explain this one time uh, to a person and they said, well, all my family's Christian and that kind of stuff. And I said, well, yeah, but are you? Well, well, but they're all, yeah, but are you? And they said, well, I must be because I'm in this family. I said, well, that's crazy thinking because being in a garage doesn't make you a car. <laughs> right? You're not a Christian just because you belong to the family. Have you ever made a decision for Christ? And that was radical for him. He had never thought that through. Uh, and we need to think that through, but it's not based on here. Not based on your educational level. If you have a PhD, doesn't mean you get to go to heaven. Right? Uh, 
it's, it's actually not based on any merits that we bring to the table at all or anything we think we might have going for it. It's based upon repenting and by faith believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that through his substitutionary death on the cross and being resurrected from the dead, that salvation comes through him and from him only. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Only in the name of Jesus can we be saved. And that's, we've lost that in our culture, right? And so when we come to communion, this is a really significant point this morning, a lot of significant points, but it's significant in, do you remember the instructions in 1 Corinthians 11? When we come to communion, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to examine ourselves. What's involved with examining ourselves? Well, we're supposed to think through our week, supposed to think through the last stretch and think about how we did. And were we obedient or were we disobedient? Did we choose to sin or did we choose to obey? How, how, did, how have we done? And it says in the Corinthian church, they were real sloppy with that. And they were messing up and doing all kinds of stuff all kinds of sexual sin and relational sin and legal sin. And they just did communion anyways, you know, because they were the church. And Paul calls them into account and he says, do you think God's pleased with that? And the obvious answer is no, right? And, and so Paul's saying, no, when you come, you should examine yourselves. And what's the idea there? We should repent. We should stop before we take communion do an assessment, and we should repent. So I'm going to let us do that right now, okay? How did you do last week? How have you done this month? We're, we just finished the month of May. How was your May? How was your spring? Were you obedient or disobedient? And do you need to repent? Is there something you have to agree with God on and change the way you've been operating because you've been operating the way you want to operate not the way he's wanting you to operate, right? So let's do that, right? Let's not talk about that. Let's actually do that. So close your eyes. Get along with the Lord. Forget the person next to you. How have you done? If you've done well, be grateful. If there's one or two things that are coming to your conscience right now, that's why God gave you a conscience so he could talk to you. And if there's something that's coming to your conscience right now, then dialogue with the Lord on that and repent. Change your thinking. Admit with him that you've been wrong. Let's do that. Father, we've spent just a few moments here thinking through our relationship with you and thinking how we've done. As we come to communion, we realize these symbols were given to us. They're symbols of repentance, right? Why should we repent? Because your body was broken for us. Your body was crushed because of our sin. You, you suffered greatly as a result of our independence and our stubbornness uh, up in prayer room today, we're talking with Susan that you're a man of sorrows. Why are you a man of sorrows? Because of the sin in this world. 
And we're reminded to repent when we eat this because you said this was broken for us. Do this in memory of me. The cup can be seen so many beautiful pictures, but one of the pictures is the price tag. Right? What did it cost Jesus to love us? It cost the shedding of his blood. Why should we repent? Because it costs our great king his life. Scripture says the life is in the blood. Right? This is a symbol of that being shed for us. He says, drink this in memory of me. Part of what I want us to get to think through is that repentance isn't just an event. Repentance is a process, right? You repent as an act, and then you repent as a lifestyle. Very much like a wedding, right? You get married, that's an event. Then you have the lifestyle. That's called a marriage. Most of us get that act down pretty good, dress up pretty fine. We look great. It's the process that wipes us out right same thing with the christian life we have underestimated probably two things one god and two our sin right and that's why you got to refresh that process all the time and make sure you're dealing with them